This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Who Knows by Guy de Montpassant. It's read by Mark Turetsky, and we'll be discussing it with Professor Chris Kosky from Ohio University. The story runs 39 minutes. Who Knows by Guy de Maupassant Read by Mark Turetsky My God, my God, I am going to write down at last what has happened to me. But how can I? How dare I? The thing is so bizarre, so inexplicable, so incomprehensible, so silly. If I were not perfectly sure of what I have seen, sure that there was not in my reasoning any defect, any error in my declarations, any lacuna in the inflexible sequence of my observations, I should believe myself to be the dupe of a simple hallucination, the sport of a singular vision. After all, who knows? Yesterday I was in a private asylum, but I went there voluntarily, out of prudence and fear. Only one single human being knows my history, and that is the doctor of said asylum. I am going to write to him. I really do not know why. To disembarrass myself? Yea, I feel as though weighed down by an intolerable nightmare. Let me explain. I have always been a recluse, a dreamer, a kind of isolated philosopher, easygoing, content with but little, harboring ill-feeling against no man and without even a grudge against heaven. I have constantly lived alone. Consequently, a kind of torture takes hold of me when I find myself in the presence of others. How is this to be explained? I do not know. I am not averse to going out into the world, to conversation, to dining with friends. But when they are near me for any length of time, even the most intimate of them, they bore me, fatigue me, enervate me, and I experience an overwhelming, torturing desire to see them get up and go, to take themselves away, and to leave me by myself. That Desire is more than a craving. It is an irresistible necessity. And if the presence of people with whom I find myself were to be continued, if I were compelled not only to listen but also to follow for any length of time their conversation, a serious accident would assuredly take place. What kind of accident? Ah, who knows? Perhaps a slight paralytic stroke? Probably. I like solitude so much that I cannot even endure the vicinage of other beings sleeping under the same roof. I cannot live in Paris because there I suffer the most acute agony. I lead a moral life and am therefore tortured in body and in nerves by that immense crowd which swarms and lives even when it sleeps. Ah, 
The sleeping of others is more painful still than their conversation, and I can never find repose when I know and feel that on the other side of a wall, several existences are undergoing these regular eclipses of reason. Why am I thus? Who knows? The cause of it is very simple, perhaps. I get tired very soon of everything that does not emanate from me. And there are many people in similar case. We are on earth two distinct races, those who have need of others, whom others amuse, engage, soothe, whom solitude harasses, pains, stupefies, like the movement of a terrible glacier or the traversing of the desert, and those, on the contrary, whom others weary, tire, bore, silently torture, whom isolation calms and bathes in the repose of independency and plunges into the humors of their own thoughts. In fine, there is here a normal physical phenomenon. Some are constituted to live a life outside of themselves, others to live a life within themselves. As for me, my exterior associations are abruptly and painfully short-lived, and as they reach their limits, I experience in my whole body and in my whole intelligence an intolerable uneasiness. As a result of this, I became attached, or rather, had become much attached to inanimate objects, which have for me the importance of beings, and my house has or had become a world in which I lived an active and solitary life, surrounded by all manner of things, furniture, familiar knickknacks, as sympathetic in my eyes as the visages of human beings. I had filled my mansion with them, little by little, I had adorned it with them, and I felt an inward content and satisfaction, was more happy than if I had been in the arms of a beloved girl, whose wanted caresses had become a soothing and delightful necessity. I had had this house constructed in the center of a beautiful garden, which hid it from the public highways, and which was near the entrance to a city where I could find, on occasion, the resources of society for which, at moments, I had longing. All my domestics slept in a separate building, which was situated at some considerable distance from my house, at the far end of the kitchen garden, which in turn was surrounded by a high wall. The obscure envelopment of night, in the silence of my concealed habitation, buried under the leaves of great trees, was so reposeful and so delicious that before retiring to my couch I lingered every evening for several hours in order to enjoy the solitude a little longer. One day, Signa had been played at one of the city theaters. It was the first time that I had listened to that beautiful, musical, and fairy-like drama, and I had derived from it the liveliest pleasures. 
I returned home on foot with a light step, my head full of sonorous phrases and my mind haunted by delightful visions. It was night, the dead of night, and so dark that I could hardly distinguish the broad highway, and consequently I stumbled into the ditch more than once. From the custom house at the barriers to my house was about a mile, perhaps a little more. A leisurely walk of about twenty minutes. It was one o'clock in the morning. One o'clock or maybe half past one. The sky had by this time cleared somewhat and the crescent appeared, the gloomy crescent of the last quarter of the moon. The crescent of the first quarter is that which rises about five or six o'clock in the evening and is clear, gay, and fretted with silver. But the one which rises after midnight is reddish, sad, and desolating. It is the true Sabbath crescent. Every prowler by night has made the same observation. The first, though slender as a thread, throws a faint, joyous light which rejoices the heart and lines the ground with distinct shadows. The last sheds hardly a dying glimmer and is so wan that it occasions hardly any shadows. In the distance, I perceived the somber mass of my garden and, I know not why, was seized with a feeling of uneasiness at the idea of going inside. I slackened my pace and walked very softly, the thick cluster of trees having the appearance of a tomb in which my house was buried. I opened my outer gate and entered the long avenue of sycamores which ran in the direction of the house, arranged vault-wise like a high tunnel, traversing opaque masses and winding round the turf lawns, on which baskets of flowers in the pale darkness could be indistinctly discerned. While approaching the house, I was seized by a strange feeling. I could hear nothing. I stood still. Through the trees there was not even a breath of air stirring. What is the matter with me? I said to myself. For ten years I had entered and re-entered in the same way without ever experiencing the least inquietude. I never had any fear at nights. The sight of a man, a marauder or a thief, would have thrown me into a fit of anger, and I would have rushed at him without any hesitation. Moreover, I was armed. I had my revolver. But I did not touch it, for I was anxious to resist that feeling of dread with which I was seized. What was it? Was it a presentiment? that mysterious presentiment which takes hold of the senses of men who have witnessed something which to them is inexplicable? Perhaps. Who knows? In proportion, as I advanced, I felt my skin quiver more and more, and when I was close to the wall, near the outhouses of my large residence, I felt that it would be necessary for me to wait a few minutes before opening the door and going inside. I sat down then on a bench under the windows of my drawing room. 
I rested there, a little disturbed, with my head leaning against the wall, my eyes open under the shade of the foliage. For the first few minutes, I did not observe anything unusual around me. I had a humming noise in my ears, but that has happened often to me. Sometimes it seemed to me that I heard trains passing, that I heard clocks striking, that I heard a multitude on the march. Very soon, those humming noises became more distinct, more concentrated, more determinable. I was deceiving myself. It was not the ordinary tingling of my arteries which transmitted to my ears these rumbling sounds, but it was a very distinct though confused noise which came, without any doubt whatever, from the interior of my house. Through the walls I distinguished this continued noise, I should rather say agitation than noise, an indistinct moving about of a pile of things, as if people were tossing about, displacing and carrying away surreptitiously all my furniture. I doubted, however, for some considerable time yet the evidence of my ears, but having placed my ear against one of the outhouses, the better to discover what this strange disturbance was inside my house, I became convinced, certain, that something was taking place in my residence which was altogether abnormal and incomprehensible. I had no fear, but I was—how shall I express it— paralyzed by astonishment. I did not draw my revolver, knowing very well that there was no need of my doing so. I listened a long time, but could come to no resolution, my mind being quite clear, though in myself I was naturally anxious. I got up and waited, listening always to the noise which gradually increased and at intervals grew very loud and which seemed to be an impatient, angry disturbance, a mysterious commotion. Then, suddenly, ashamed of my timidity, I seized my bunch of keys. I selected the one I wanted, guided it into the lock, turned it twice, and pushing the door with all my might, sent it banging against the partition. The collision sounded like the report of a gun, and there responded to that explosive noise from roof to basement of my residence a formidable tumult. It was so sudden, so terrible, so deafening that I recoiled a few steps, and though I knew it to be wholly useless, I pulled my revolver out of its case. I continued to listen for some time longer. I could distinguish now an extraordinary pattering upon the steps of my grand staircase, on the waxed floors, on the carpets, not of boots or of naked feet, but of iron and wooden crutches, which resounded like cymbals. Then I suddenly discerned on the threshold of my door an armchair, my large reading easy chair, which set off waddling. It went away through my garden. Others followed it, those of my drawing room, then my sofas, dragging themselves along like crocodiles on their short paws. 
Then all my chairs bounding like goats and the little footstools hopping like rabbits. Oh, what a sensation! I slunk back into a clump of bushes where I remained crouched up, watching, meanwhile, my furniture defile past, for everything walked away. The one behind the other, briskly or slowly, according to its weight or size. My piano, my grand piano, bounded past with the gallop of a horse and a murmur of music in its sides. The smaller article slid along the gravel like snails. My brushes, crystal, cups and saucers, which glistened in the moonlight. I saw my writing desk appear, a rare curiosity of the last century, which contained all the letters I had ever received, all the history of my heart, an old history from which I suffered so much. Besides... There were inside of it a great many cherished photographs. Suddenly, I no longer had any fear. I threw myself on it, seized it as one would seize a thief, as one would seize a wife about to run away. But it pursued its irresistible course, and despite my efforts and despite my anger, I could not even retard its pace. As I was resisting in desperation that insuperable force, I was thrown to the ground. It then rolled over me, trailed me along the gravel, and the rest of my furniture which followed it began to march over me, tramping on my legs and injuring them. When I loosed my hold, other articles had passed over my body, just as a charge of cavalry does over the body of a dismounted soldier." Seized at last with terror, I succeeded in dragging myself out of the main avenue and in concealing myself among the shrubbery, so as to watch the disappearance of the most cherished objects, the smallest, the least striking, the least unknown, which had once belonged to me. I then heard, in the distance, noises which came from my apartments, which sounded now as if the house were empty a loud noise of the shutting of doors. They were being slammed from top to bottom of my dwelling, even the door which I had just opened myself unconsciously and which had closed of itself when the last thing had taken its departure. I took flight also, running toward the city, and only regained my self-composure on reaching the boulevards where I met belated people, I rang the bell of a hotel where I was known. I had knocked the dust off my clothes with my hands, and I told the porter that I had lost my bunch of keys, which included also that to the kitchen garden, where my servant slept in a house standing by itself. On the other side of the wall of the enclosure which protected my fruits and vegetables from the raids of marauders. I covered myself up to the eyes in the bed which was assigned to me but could not sleep, and I waited for the dawn listening to the throbbing of my heart. I had given orders that my servants were to be summoned to the hotel at daybreak, and my valet de chambre knocked at my door at seven o'clock in the morning. His countenance bore a woeful look. A great misfortune has happened during the night, monsieur, said he. What is it? Somebody has stolen the whole of Monsieur's furniture, all 
everything, even to the smallest articles. This news pleased me. Why? Who knows? I was complete master of myself, bent on dissimulating, on telling no one of anything I had seen, determined on concealing and in burying in my heart of hearts a terrible secret. I responded, They must then be the same people who have stolen my keys. The police must be informed immediately. I am going to get up, and I will join you in a few moments. The investigation into the circumstances under which the robbery might have been committed lasted for five months. Nothing was found, not even the smallest of my knickknacks, nor the least trace of the thieves. Good gracious, if I had only told them what I knew, if I had said, I should have been locked up. I, not the thieves, for I was the only person who had seen everything from the first. Yes, but I knew how to keep silence. I shall never refurnish my house. That were indeed useless. The same thing would happen again. I had no desire even to re-enter the house, and I did not re-enter it. I never visited it again. I moved to Paris, to the hotel, and consulted doctors in regard to the condition of my nerves, which had disquieted me a good deal ever since that awful night. They advised me to travel, and I followed their counsel. 2. I began by making an excursion into Italy— the sun did me much good. For six months I wandered about from Genoa to Venice, from Venice to Florence, from Florence to Rome, from Rome to Naples. Then I traveled over Sicily, a country celebrated for its scenery and its monuments, relics left by the Greeks and the Normans. Passing over into Africa, I traversed at my ease that immense desert, yellow and tranquil, in which camels, gazelles, and Arab vagabonds roam about where in the rare and transparent atmosphere there hover no vague hauntings, where there is never any night but always day. I returned to France by Marseille, and in spite of all its Provençal gaiety, the diminished clearness of the sky made me sad. I experienced, in returning to the continent, the peculiar sensation of an illness which I believed had been cured and a dull pain which predicted that the seeds of disease had not been eradicated. I then returned to Paris. At the end of a month, I was very dejected. It was in the autumn, and I determined to make, before winter came, an excursion through Normandy, a country with which I was unacquainted. I began my journey in the best of spirits at Rouen, and for eight days I wandered about, passive, ravished, and enthusiastic, in that ancient city, that astonishing museum of extraordinary Gothic monuments. But one afternoon, about four o'clock, as I was sauntering slowly through a seemingly unattractive street, by which there ran a stream as black as ink called Eau de Robec, my attention, fixed for the moment on the quaint, antique appearance of some of the houses, 
was suddenly attracted by the view of a series of second-hand furniture shops, which followed one another door after door. Ah, they had carefully chosen their locality, these sordid traffickers in antiquities, in that quaint little street overlooking the sinister stream of water, under those tile and slate-pointed roofs on which still grinned the veins of bygone days. At the end of these grim storehouses you saw piled up sculpted chests, Rouen, Sèvres, and Moustier's pottery, painted statues, others of oak, Christs, virgins, saints, church ornaments, chasubles, capes, even sacred vases, and an old gilded wooden tabernacle where a god had hidden himself away. What singular caverns there are in those lofty houses, crowded with objects of every description, where the existence of things seemed to be ended, things which had survived their original possessors, their century, their times, their fashions, in order to be bought as curiosities by new generations. My affection for antiques was awkward in that city of antiquaries. I went from shop to shop, crossing in two strides the rotten four-plank bridges thrown over the nauseous current of the Eau de Robec. Heaven protect me. What a shock! At the end of a vault, which was crowded with articles of every description and which seemed to be the entrance to the catacombs of a century of ancient furniture, I suddenly descried one of my most beautiful wardrobes. I approached it, trembling in every limb, trembling to such an extent that I dared not touch it. I put forth my hand. I hesitated. Nevertheless, it was indeed my wardrobe, a unique wardrobe of the time of Louis XIII, recognizable by anyone who had seen it only once. Casting my eyes suddenly a little farther, toward the more somber depths of the gallery, I perceived three of my tapestry-covered chairs, and farther on still, my two Henry II tables. Such rare treasures that people came all the way from Paris to see them. Think. Only think in what state of mind I now was. I advanced, haltingly, quivering with emotion, but I advanced, for I am brave. I advanced like a knight of the dark ages. At every step, I found something that belonged to me. My brushes, my books, my tables, my silks, my arms, everything, except the bureau full of my letters, and that I could not discover. I walked on, descending to the dark galleries in order to ascend next to the floors above. I was alone. I called out. Nobody answered. I was alone. There was no one in that house, a house as vast and tortuous as a labyrinth. Night came on, and I was compelled to sit down in the darkness on one of my own chairs, for I had no desire to go away. From time to time I shouted, Hello, hello, somebody. 
I had sat there certainly for more than an hour when I heard steps, steps soft and slow. I knew not where. I was unable to locate them, but bracing myself up, I called out anew, whereupon I perceived a glimmer of light in the next chamber. Who is there? said a voice. A buyer, I responded. It is too late to enter thus into a shop. I have been waiting for you for more than an hour, I answered. You can come back tomorrow. Tomorrow I must quit Rouen. I dared not advance, and he did not come to me. I saw always the glimmer of his light, which was shining on a tapestry on which were two angels flying over the dead on a field of battle. It belonged to me also. I said, Well, come here. I am at your service, he answered. I got up and went toward him. Standing in the center of a large room was a little man, very short and very fat, phenomenally fat, a hideous phenomenon. He had a singular straggling beard, white and yellow, and not a hair on his head, not a hair. As he held his candle aloft at arm's length in order to see me, his cranium appeared to me to resemble a little moon in the vast chamber encumbered with old furniture. His features were wrinkled and blown, and his eyes could not be seen. I bought three chairs which belonged to myself and paid at once a large sum for them, giving him merely the number of my room at the hotel. They were to be delivered the next day before nine o'clock. I then started off. He conducted me, with much politeness, as far as the door. I immediately repaired to the commissaire's office at the central police depot and told the commissaire of the robbery which had been perpetrated and the discovery I had just made. He required time to communicate by telegraph with the authorities who had originally charged of the case for information, and he begged me to wait in his office until an answer came back. An hour later, an answer came back, which was in accord with my statements. I am going to arrest and interrogate this man at once, he said to me, for he may have conceived some sort of suspicion and smuggled away out of sight what belongs to you. Will you go and dine and return in two hours? I shall then have the man here, and I shall subject him to a fresh interrogation in your presence. Most gladly, monsieur. I thank you with my whole heart. I went to dine at my hotel, and I ate better than I could have believed. I was quite happy now, thinking that man was in the hands of the police. Two hours later, I returned to the office of the police functionary who was waiting for me. Well, monsieur, said he on perceiving me, we have not been able to find your man. My agents cannot put their hands on him. Ah, I felt my heart sinking. But you have at least found his house, I asked. Yes, certainly. And what is more, it is now being watched and guarded until his return. As for him, he has disappeared. Disappeared?
Yes, disappeared. He ordinarily passes his evenings at the house of a female neighbor, who is also a furniture broker, a queer sort of sorceress, the widow Bidouin. She has not seen him this evening and cannot give any information in regard to him. We must wait until tomorrow. I went away. Ah, how sinister the streets of Rouen seemed to me, now troubled and haunted. I slept so badly that I had a fit of nightmare every time I went off to sleep. As I did not wish to appear too restless or eager, I waited till ten o'clock the next day before reporting myself to the police. The merchant had not reappeared. His shop remained closed. The commissary said to me, I have taken all the necessary steps. The court has been made acquainted with the affair. We shall go together to that shop and have it opened. And you shall point out to me all that belongs to you. We drove there in a cab. Police agents were stationed round the building. There was a locksmith, too, and the door of the shop was soon opened. I entered. I could not discover my wardrobes, my chairs, my tables. I saw nothing. Nothing of that which had furnished my house. No, nothing. Although on the previous evening I could not take a step without encountering something that belonged to me. The chief commissary, much astonished, regarded me at first with suspicion. My God, monsieur, said I to him, the disappearance of these articles of furniture coincides strangely with that of the merchant. He laughed. That is true. You did wrong in buying and paying for the articles which were your own property yesterday. It was that which gave him the cue. What seems to me incomprehensible, I replied, is that all the places that were occupied by my furniture are now filled by other furniture. Oh, responded the commissary, he has had all night and has no doubt been assisted by accomplices. This house must communicate with its neighbors. But have no fear, monsieur. I will have the affair promptly and thoroughly investigated. The brigand shall not escape us for long, seeing that we are in charge of the den. Ah, oh, my heart, my heart, my poor heart, how it beats. I remained a fortnight at Rouen. The man did not return. Heavens, good heavens, that man... What was it that could have frightened and surprised him? But on the sixteenth day, early in the morning, I received from my gardener, now the keeper of my empty and pillaged house, the following strange letter. Monsieur, I have the honor to inform monsieur that something happened the evening before last, which nobody can understand, and the police no more than the rest of us. The whole of the furniture has been returned. Not one piece is missing. Everything is in its place, up to the very smallest article. The house is now the same in every respect as it was before the robbery took place.
It is enough to make one lose one's head. The thing took place during the night, Friday, Saturday. The roads are dug up as though the whole fence had been dragged from its place up to the door. The same thing was observed the day after the disappearance of the furniture. We are anxiously expecting Monsieur, whose very humble and obedient servant I am, Philippe Rodin. Ah, no, no, ah, never, never, ah, no, I shall never return there. I took the letter to the commissary of police. It is a very clever restitution, said he. Let us bury the hatchet. We shall nip the man one of these days. But he has never been nipped. No, they have not nipped him, and I am afraid of him now, as of some ferocious animal that has been let loose behind me. Inexplicable. It is inexplicable, this chimera of a moonstruck skull. We shall never solve or comprehend it. I shall not return to my former residence. What does it matter to me? I am afraid of encountering that man again, and I shall not run the risk. And if he returns, if he takes possession of his shop, who is to prove that my furniture was on his premises? There is only my testimony against him, and I feel that that is not above suspicion. Ah, no, this kind of existence has become unendurable. I have not been able to guard the secret of what I have seen. I could not continue to live like the rest of the world with the fear upon me that those scenes might be reenacted. So, I have come to consult the doctor who directs this lunatic asylum, and I have told him everything. After questioning me for a long time, he said to me, Will you consent, monsieur, to remain here for some time? Most willingly, monsieur. You have some means? Oh, yes, monsieur. Will you have isolated apartments? Yes, monsieur. Would you care to receive any friends? No, monsieur, no. Nobody. The man from Rouen might take it into his head to pursue me here, to be revenged on me. I have been alone. Alone, all, all alone for three months. I am growing tranquil by degrees. I have no longer any fears. If the antiquary should become mad, and if he should be brought into this asylum, even prisons themselves are not places of security. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mark Turetsky. Hi, I'm Chris Kosky. And we're going to be talking about who knows? By Guy de Maupassant, a story you've all just heard. It's a 1880 or 1890 story, 1890. I think. 1890. Um, one of the last uh, Guy de Maupassant stories. Um, 
somebody asked me to if they you know they wanted to be on a fantasy podcast and I said uh well this one's kind of fant uh, what kind of genre is this what do, what do you think um this particular story um yeah uh, it's it's a, it's a little hard to uh to sort of stay and it, and it's hard with a lot of Maupassant stories um I I actually avoided the term fantasy specifically when I when I taught a course on Maupassant um just focusing instead on the concepts of the mysterious, uh, the macabre and so forth, um, the morbid. Yeah. Because they don't always fall into fantasy. There isn't always an element of the magical or the supernatural. Though this one, I think, arguably could. It depends on whether you buy the story of the narrator or not. Yeah, I, I keep thinking... Like it's a very slippery story because there there's a couple of ways you could look at like what's happening. The most obvious one is he's just nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's insane. I, I mean, he he wrote uh, Montpassant wrote a lot of stories where you know there's one even called "Am I Insane?" Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> the character is just you know yeah. The answer is yes. You are. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's elements in the story that make it seem like he's not insane. Um. I mean, the I- events that happen are, are insane, but uh, it, I, I don't know if it is a fantasy story. It, it, he seems to think it's a horror story. Well, yeah. I, 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 sorry, personally, sorry. Personally, I think it's, um, it's a satire of gothic horror. That's, huh. yeah. I mean, you've got it's this cat- insane guy. Uh, and he's telling this, the, this story of this awful thing that, that's happened to him. And the thing that happens to him is kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's so ludicrous. My, my furniture ran away from me and now I'm insane. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, if that happened to me, I would check myself into a mental institution. I mean, I don't know what else I could do, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I could, it's it's very interesting because I mean he Montpassant did check himself into a mental, mental institution or was checked in I don't know if right. it's voluntary or not. Um, he, well, he says it is, but we don't know. Is he lying to us? Uh, the narrator. Uh, the narrator know? says I checked myself in voluntarily, but yeah, we don't know if he's making that up. Mark, when, when you narrated it, uh, mm-hmm. were you lying? <laughs> um. <laughs> I I try not to make choices like that. <laughs> no, that's probably the worst thing for me to say. So, um uh <laughs> um, you, I think you honestly believed it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's more interesting if uh if you say everything as if it's the god's honest truth and, you know, kind of leave it up to the uh the audience cuz if you if you make it clear that he's lying, then there's no there's no mystery to it for the audience, right? He, he may be deluding himself, right? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's lying to us in the sense that he, he, he's not right in the head. Right. Uh, right. What happened. Uh, but, I mean, I keep coming back to the fact that there are independent witnesses who testify to a, a, at least a couple of the major events. Like, for example, <laughs> servants, right? The first time he, he sees them running out of the house, he goes to a hotel. And, uh, calls for his servants to come to him in the morning. And they say, Oh, monsieur, your stuff has all been stolen in the night. And he's like, 
really happy about this because he, that means he's not insane, right? Right. Uh, ex- well, except he still is because they say it was stolen, which is much more reasonable than it ran away. Right. Right. But and then later on, it comes back, and that's independent of him being there. Yes. Um. I mean, even if it is, if they are stolen, they're very, very thorough thieves because it's, <laughs> everything is gone. Yeah, everything, whether it had value or not. All right. the knickknacks, right? Yeah. I mean, but I think you know. I mean, one of the things, and I think Jesse, you're like putting your finger on on a major issue of this, not just this story, but a lot of Maupassant's stories. Um, I mean, the title itself is, who knows? Mm-hmm. And I think I think Maupassant is intentionally being ambiguous. He's 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 intentionally not pushing the reader too far one way or, or the other. It's a balancing act. And it's yeah, effective. and and you notice you'll notice this not just in this story but in a lot of stories. Even if you're ninety percent sure that the person narrating is insane, or if you're ninety percent sure that something supernatural really is happening. No matter which way you get pushed or you feel that you're being pushed by Maupassant, there's always a grain of the opposite mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. It's a, it, he, it, it's, it, he died in 1893, mm-hmm. written this uh, approximately 1890, um, and he's apparently suffering, uh, what was the disease? Uh, it's the 19th century. The British call it the French disease. I believe he had syphilis. Syphilis. syphilis, that's the yeah. one, right? So it's, he's got syphilis of the brain or whatever it is that causes people major problems, and yet he still is a master of the short story. This is a fantastic uh, It's just amazingly well-written, I think, yeah. and constructed. It is. The only, only, the only way that I can conceive of a, a crazy man having written this story and having it be so good is that it's a true story, right? That it's him. But it's not because uh, the character is not him. He, you know, he was. Uh, it, it's not exactly his story, mm-hmm. right? I I don't know about his marital status, but he was not averse to people. Um, he he was kind of a loner, actually. Was he? Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't super from from what I've from what I've read about him. He wasn't super uh, super comfortable. He, he he spent a lot of time alone. Boating, boating. Um, well yeah, boating among other things. Um, so he he did like he did like his solitude. Yeah, and there are some very curious contradictions in this story. I mean, the the when the doctor recommends he goes on vacation, he goes to uh, Paris first, and then he tours all the European cities. Yep. And this is a guy who who hates solitude and can't sleep uh, in a city because. Of everyone else's sleeping causes him the inability to sleep, mm-hmm. which is very curious. Many very curious things in here. Um, let me just throw you some some of my notes and see sure. if any of these uh, what 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 you make of them. So I've, I've broken it up into uh, a few different things. Um, let's see the sign of death preceding strange events. So this is some quotes here. The thick cluster of trees having the appearance of a tomb in which my house was buried. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this is preceding him going into his house where he's very hesitant. But notice also his description of how he would go into his house at night anyways. He would, for quote-unquote, several hours, 
delay going inside so as to enjoy the garden more at night. He's kind of a weird guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Several hours every evening he would stay out. Yeah. Avoid going to bed. Well, you know, if 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 the furniture in his house is is taking the place of other people, maybe he's gotten sick of these other people that he's populated his house with and needs a I few minutes out in the garden. That's true. I, that's I think true. that's it. I mean, he describes his relationship to people as being, you know, averse. And then he describes how much he loves his furniture. And he talks, uh, he says that they're like his friends and his, his fellows, that he loves them individually, each and every one. Yeah. He, and he does have that kind of objective, uh, that, that affection for objects appears in other, in other stories. That I don't know if either of you have ever read The Golden Braid. No. Also called The Tress of Hair. Um, Not sure. I don't think so. There's there's a character who basically um, sort of experiences what, what's borderline object sexuality. I mean, he falls in love with a wardrobe, huh. essentially, or a, a wardrobe or writing desk. I can't remember now, but he uh, he finds an old braid of hair in it that belongs obviously belongs to some woman who owned this object, and then he falls in love with that braid of hair, but. It's it's always from one object to the next that his his affection transfers. So it's it's similar here, I think. In in yeah. who knows, right? The, there there is something special about the writing desk in this story too. Uh, mm-hmm. Of all the all the pieces of furniture, it's the one that gets the most description. Um, it also contains all his letters and all his photographs. Um, I guess they're all, everything of you know written communication with the outside world is stored in his desk, and then. Um, later on, when he spots his furniture in the uh, tomb-like uh, uh, catacombs of uh, Rouen, uh, the street where they sell furniture, he says that every piece of thing that every every item that he owned, every piece of furniture that he owned, except the writing desk, was there. Mm-hmm. And I I was thinking, well, maybe that's because the writing desk would contain the evidence that, you know, this belongs to me, right? It's got my signature on it. Right. He could seize it and run out of the room. But later on, when the police uh, or the servant informs him that the furniture has all been returned, (laughs) there's no mention that the writing desk is missing. He says every article. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's clear. Every article is is back. So where did the writing desk go? It went on a different vacation than then uh him it's 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 mysterious well it's it's interesting because his writing desk uh because it contains all of his written you know his letters his his personal papers it's it's as if his personal history is now gone and yeah. uh it's 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 that sort of deracination that that that's sort of paralleled with his becoming this this wanderer and, and going off and visiting other cities. I mean that's that's the way it is when you visit somewhere where, where nobody knows you. You have you have no roots there, you have no history. Nice. Right. Nice. And and not and maybe even not just his personal history, but specifically all of his emotion and nostalgia. Mm. Um because well, he talks about the history of his heart, an old history from which he had suffered so much. And besides there was inside of it a great many cherished photographs. Right. So it's 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 almost specifically his emotional life. And 
you know, I, I have to admit, when I first read this story, <laughs> preparing the class, mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't sure what to make of it either. And I know, Jesse, you said that to me when we initially had a conversation about this. You said you didn't quite know what to make of this story. Yeah. Um, and I, I started to wonder, I started focusing yesterday when I reread, I started focusing on the, uh, the, the writing desk, specifically its emotional component. I made me wonder if the furniture, if the whole story isn't sort of an a larger metaphor for losing one's mind Mm. where the furniture is essentially the mental faculties that disappear from the house and then come back eventually sort of. Yeah. The house is him. The house is him. Yeah. But I don't know. I haven't to really explore that. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful interpretation. Yeah. But it's 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 so it, 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 there's something going on. I mean, it, it is ridiculous on its face. The furniture <laughs> runs away, <laughs> and and yet when he says um, he says you know in the specific detail of what they're doing, right? The the different uh, here is then I suddenly discerned on the threshold of my door an armchair, my large reading easy chair. Which set off waddling, <laughs> like a duck, I guess, right? Right. It went through my garden, others followed it. And then every piece of, uh, it's not every piece, but it, it, they're all moving in their own special way. Those of my drawing room, uh, then my sofas dragging themselves along like crocodiles on their short paws, <laughs> then my, all my chairs bounding like goats, and the little footstools hopping like rabbits. It's like, it's it's not like just suddenly all the furniture walked out. It's a sort of a detailed, like wow, look at that, wow. And then he gra- doesn't he grab the writing desk? He does. Yeah, he, he jumps to up. tackle it, and it tramples him or <laughs> yes. throws him off. Well, and he refers to it as as being like a wife. Uh, you know, he 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 That's jumps right. on it, tries to tackle it as you would a wife who's trying to run away, which right. <laughs> gives you some idea about. Either the narrator's or Maupassant's uh, woman issues. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love. I. I it's. It, and the, you know, there's a number of refrains. The the main one is the title. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, they come again and again. But the other one that stuck in my mind was, "Imagine my feelings," right? <laughs> when something weird happens, right? And then we're we're like. He's insane. And then he says, imagine my feelings, right? We're like, oh, yeah, I get you, man. That is, you're sort of drawn into the fact that he, you know, he thinks this is weird. And yet, um, in imagining his feelings, there's also this like, yeah, but you're crazy. So what, I don't know. What, what do we, it, it, it draws us in to make it a little more real, I think. Oh, because otherwise we'd be saying like, yeah, he's just nuts. But then he says, Im- if, imagine if you had seen what I had seen, you'd think you were crazy, too. And he almost tries to pull you into his place by, by, by doing that, make you stop being the reader and become the participant, effectively. Exactly. Now, another um, weird oddity, and it, maybe this is 19th century uh, rural France was a lot more dangerous than uh, I would guess. But <laughs> the revolver? He carries a revolver yes. with him to the, to the yeah. town, and and there's it's not just that he mentions marauders more than once. He does, uh, which is like someone who goes into the countryside and 
steals all your stuff while you're, you know, the country's being invaded. He's got a wall to protect his garden. He's got a, a clutch of keys. It's not just like, you know, a house key. He's got, and it's not like he has a car, right? So all the keys are to lock all the doors. And, and notice when it's not just the furniture that's alive. It's also the doors of all the all the rooms in his house, each of which slams like a gunshot, mm-hmm. I think, sound, mm-hmm. right? Um, and when he goes to Rouen and s- discovers his his furniture and such, he also says that his arms were there. And I, you know, that's the, his weapons. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who is on guard for something. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, there are people today who who live in seclusion who arm themselves to the teeth and they're paranoid about marauders or the government or whoever is going to come and and take their stuff Uh, (laughs) but his vegetables is what he seemed to be you know (laughs) it's protecting himself his vegetables against marauders yeah and he is very like he he said he would be excited to be able to draw his pistol to uh if it was a a thief or a a robber or a, there was some other word there I think he used marauder again there too didn't he yeah i uh, but i yeah I think near marauder there was also another word that was like a highwayman or something like that because it it's it's a very curious thing he he has he calls it a presentiment uh, it's a premonition of some danger right, right? it's very indistinct danger as what's going to happen and then I think if we are a little bit charitable to this idea in Rouen, on his way down the river Robec, mm-hmm. um, he he describes that place in a kind of a similar premonition-y way. Um, the river is the black, na- in one translation, it's nauseous waters. Mm-hmm. And he feels sort of an attraction to the area, but also a repulsion mm-hmm. in the same way that he has of his home at the, at the night. Exactly. And in both cases, he's appro- approaching a building that contains his furniture. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I also noticed that the night after that, uh, or the morning after that visitation, mm-hmm. he's in a hotel, and someone comes to the hotel to tell him about his furniture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in now, both cases, just yeah. like in the <laughs> yeah the previous instance, right? Like the in the first case, it's the servant saying, "Hey, Monsieur, your uh, your furniture's gone," right? And then later on, it's, "Hey, Monsieur, your furniture's back." Mm-hmm. And it, if you go with that, what you were saying uh, before, uh, Chris, um, it, that makes me think that the hotel is really an asylum. Right, and the the guy who's <laughs> coming is saying, "Monsieur, you're 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 crazy. <laughs> That's why you're here." And then, "Monsieur, you're you're well again. Yeah, now you make you found your mental faculties." <laughs> yes, <laughs> they've all suddenly returned somehow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, it is interesting because with both the hotel and the asylum, he checks himself in. Right. I mean, you'd use the same expression in either case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You get your yeah. own room with a bed. That's right. Um, yeah. I, I got the sense that the the uh, the doctor was was going to milk him for for some money <laughs> at the end of the story because he, he he asks him, "Do you want uh, 
do you want anyone to visit? Oh, do you want a private room? And he says, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And then he says, uh, will anyone be visiting you? And he says, oh, no, 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 definitely not. <laughs> um, and he's like, are you a private gentleman? Can you afford to pay for this? Right, right. right. Uh, and I, I sort of got the sense that he's going to be there forever. One has that impression. <laughs> and... You know, the, the other thing is there, there gets, there's a little ambiguity at the end when he's talking about the asylum, but then he mentions prison almost in the same breath. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even so, prisons themselves are not places of security. Right. But he's a, in that instance, at the end of the story, he's actually he's, he's explicitly afraid of the man from Rouen, the nameless, fat, uh, bald unkempt, yellow-bearded man from Rouen. Right. But he also says, if he, the fat-bearded man from Rouen, should be brought into this asylum, even prisons themselves are not places of security. Yeah, does that mean he's going to kill him? Well, grammatically, it doesn't make sense. You would think that the sentence should say, even asylums themselves are not places of security. Yeah, yeah. Right. So he's kind of grammatically made a, a link between asylum and prison. Yeah. As if, as you said, the, the asylum has become this place where he's going to be for the rest of his life. He's going to be locked in. So that's another area of, you know, this, this come, everything, so many things in the story, I think, come back to the question of ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. And beautiful. not seeing, necessarily seeing things for what they are or not being able to determine what they really are. Is the hotel a hotel? Is it an asylum? Is the asylum an asylum? Or is it a prison? Right. And you start flipping back and forth with almost every detail in the story, I think. Um, uh, coming back to the theme of being crazy, uh, one of the, um, the other recurring images is the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning of the story, he, he gives a very intense description of what the moon makes you feel. And... Uh, here, I'll read it here. It says, The sky had by this time cleared somewhat, and the crescent appeared, the gloomy crescent of the last quarter of the moon. Uh, the crescent of the first quarter, which rises about five or six o'clock in the evening, is clear, gay, fretted with silver. But the one that rises after midnight is reddish, sad, and desolating. It is the true Sabbath, Sabbath crescent. And I believe in one uh, translation, it's the witch's Sabbath crescent. Mm. Now, uh, I gotta tell you guys, the moon doesn't look that different to me before midnight than it does after midnight. <laughs> yeah. But for him, he's very certain of what, he, and he seems to think this is universal. Well, mm-hmm. he's also, he's coming from this, uh, play which he describes as beautiful, musical, and fairy-like drama. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it seems as if he's, he's had this, this spell cast on him uh, throughout this because, you know, he doesn't want to go into his house, so he sits down on a bench outside for a few minutes. Um, it's it's this this weird kind of um, state that he enters into uh, right before everything goes bananas. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. He, you know, it, it, uh, it, he, he mentioned something that, I, I mean, it kind of could be another explanation, right? At, right at that period, he says, um, 
he says, and if the presence of people with whom I find myself were to be continued, if it were compelled, and this starts make, making me think about the furniture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if it were to be compelled, uh, oh, I lost my spot. Um, poop, poop, poop. Oh, here it is. Um, not only to listen, but also to follow for any length of time their conversation, a serious accident would assuredly take place. In the book. What kind of accident? Ah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Perhaps a slightly paralytic stroke? Question mark? Probably, exclamation point. <laughs> it's like, okay, that w- that's not what happens to me when I'm annoyed at parties. I don't have a paralytic stroke. <laughs> but right. for him, um, it, it's, it's almost like he's having a stroke in the garden on the way to... Uh, his house, right? And then mm-hmm. when he gets there, he hears this noise that's not just in his ears, not just the blood rushing through his brain, he says, or through his body, he says. He says it's also the um, coming from outside. In fact, it's coming from inside the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, suddenly all the faculties leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well... <clears throat> about that uh about that noise it says i had a humming noise in my ears but that has happened often to me sometimes right. it seemed to me i heard trains passing that i heard clocks striking that i heard a multitude on the march so uh, it seems like this is not his first real um episode let's say right um you know if he's hearing trains and clocks uh and marching uh yeah Multitudes. Multitudes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and he does see multi- multitudes, marching multitudes in a moment, right? Yeah. He does. And, it, and it's, it's almost as if all of those other events have been building up to this one, which is the big one. Yeah. yeah. A, a, a grand mall seizure. <laughs> I mean, in a way, yeah. I mean, because with this one, he actually gets to the point where he has, where is it just, the noise resounded like symbols. In his, I mean, it gets, it's, it's almost like this is the crescendo. Yeah, mm. of of all of the episodes that he's had, I did I did some searching around to try and find this play. I thought it might be real. It's Signad S I G N A D. Now, I couldn't find any evidence that it's a real play. It probably was. It is. Oh, <laughs> uh, but uh, the only thing I can make work out of the name was that in Swedish it means designed. Oh really? According to Google Translate, mm. um, but that's that uh, that doesn't perfectly align with anything. It's a real play. Um, I think so. What I found was uh, actually it's it's related to uh, Sigurd. Oh, oh, okay. From what I could find, it was um, by the French composer Ernest de Heyer on a libretto by Camille Duloclo and Alfred Blau. So is it an opera? Uh, apparently, yeah, it had its world premiere in Brussels on January 7th, 1884, and finally at the Paris Opera on June 12th, 1885. Huh. Well, there so you it's, go. It's basically related to the, it's related to the ring cycle. It's that type uh-huh. of thematic. Uh, no wonder you got in home so late. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one o'clock in the, one or one, one thirty in the morning. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, Aren't there dwarves in the ring cycle and presumably in Sigurd? And he meets a man who's, you know, a small, fat, bearded, possibly magical man. (laughs) Yeah, definitely possibly magical. Yeah. 
And so again, it's his fantasy and his re- or his fantasy and reality getting mixed together all of a sudden. Right. You know, and then the the way the police deal with him, like they they're a little bit suspicious, but they kind of find you know uh, they find evidence, but it might be like they're just playing. Like I got the sense later on that they were sort of playing along with him. Hmm. You know. At first, they're like, yeah, all your stuff's gone, and <laughs> that happened. And then later on, you know, he says, ah, oh, well, we, we'll, uh, we'll keep watch for them. Right. And, and then it's like they're not so worried, even though they had all this expense money. You know, they, they brought out hundreds of cops to surround the place, and then they investigate, and all the furniture's disappeared. Mm-hmm. And then... And then there's a curious word that the cop used to describe the what, what happened to the furniture because he, he's the cops are less concerned about the at first uh, or after a, an initial like little suspicion they're less concerned about him being uh, you know a liar because he says oh the this house communicates with its neighbors right, right. now going back to his house. His house doesn't communicate with its neighbors, right? It's got all these walls. Um, in our in our community, it you know we can sort of un- understand things a little better. In your community, you know everything just flees at once. It's weird. Oh, it's weird. Mm-hmm. Very weird. Now, um, I, I mentioned the moon. Um, there's uh, the animals, uh, the animals of the of the house fleeing, the uh, people of the house fleeing, the, the furniture of the house fleeing. We've got that, um, but uh, I I was not. I, I mean, I'm much better understanding the story now now that I think of the house as his mind. But uh, earlier this week, uh, I had a dream, and I I, I sleep my dreams because often they're really funny. Um, and strange as dreams would be, very much like um, this story is very, you know, inexplicable. But if I don't write them down, they they go away just like, um, you know, dreams do. But uh, I I tweeted this earlier this week. It was dreamt an explanation for who knows. Uh, the furniture was deleted, and their dissolution was confabulated. And that would mean that uh, it was like, because he, this is not a psychological interpretation, it's an ontological interpretation, right? There's, there's There's like, you know, we're in a computer program, there's a simulated world, right? Sure. And somebody presses the delete button on something accidentally, which, you know, we do when we're, you know, if we're, I don't know, building SimCity or something, and... A building, we accidentally hit the uh, destroy building, right? What do the people living in that city think about that? It's like, what the hell? That just disappeared. And then a minute later, you know, you press undo, control Z. <laughs> <laughs> what do the people there make of this? It's like, it's like a miracle, right? <laughs> Except it's not a useful miracle, like where, you know, loaves and fishes suddenly multiply. It's like a miracle as in the laws of nature no longer apply. Furniture can walk. Right, right, and um, so if this is a good explanation, an ontolo- the you know an ontological explanation, he's not really crazy. He's just a he's just an odd gentleman, mm-hmm. 
who likes guns and uh, doesn't <laughs> like football, um, which, you know, is much more reasonable than assuming, uh, you know, some some other alternatives. Um, a lot of people are like that, as you were saying, Mark. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so if 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 he if he deleted um, if if his furniture was deleted in the same way that uh, you know because he's attached it to people, he's attached to them as we are to people. It it's kind of like um, losing your friends or. Um, it's like something got cross wired because of he either he's too close to it or the the player of the game the higher power as it were mm-hmm. us god right was uh incompetent you know not perfect right and there is this curious thread that goes through the whole thing and starting with the very first line i believe um my god my god um and in another translation, merciful heaven. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And then very shortly, he explains how he's never held a grudge against man or heaven. Right. And yet, all the way through this refrain of um, who knows, the answer is God knows. Right. right. It, it, that's the explanation we normally say. God knows what he's doing. And, right. You know, well, it's, it's interesting that you raise that point. Um, I hadn't thought of this connection until you until you just mentioned it, but there is oh what is the story called? Um, it's the story about the school teacher that starts murdering all his uh, students. The Maupassant story. I'm drawing a blank now. I want to say it's called oh it's called Revenge. That's what it's oh. called. And essentially, the story is about this. The reason the school school chief teacher has done this is he's trying to get his revenge against God. Because God takes away the people that we love, he says. And he says, well, ha, I'm going to preempt him and get my revenge on him that way. Take away his pleasure from killing people by... Stealing God's pleasure at killing people. By, by, by killing them himself, exactly. Mm. So it's interesting you, when you brought up the idea that he doesn't have a grudge against man or heaven. There's another story by Maupassant where the exact opposite is the case. Yeah. Um, right. And it is, it's a, it's a, re, a revolt or a rebellion against this perception that there's a higher power that deletes, essentially, without right. any explanation to us. There's no, there, there's no uh, plot reason why this has to be in here. You know, right. uh, there's a lot of that, you know, you could say that about a lot of the lines that are in here. But the way, you know... The theory of, and a lot of people subscribe to this theory, I think, um, the theory of the short story is that uh, the short story is the only form that can be perfect uh, in literary terms, right? <laughs> there's the perfect short story. There's never the perfect novel is the idea. I, I, I don't know if that's true about the novel, but I, I believe that about the short story. There are many short stories, which I think this is, I wouldn't change a word, you know. And in the, the more I I you know, I've done this story like oh, I'm saying. I don't know if it's 18 times, but it was a lot of times. It's a nice short story, a lot to think about when you're you're listening to it and reading it. Um, there, there's something perfect about every placement of these refrains of the even the word lacuna, which is very early, right, Mark? Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, you're narrating, and it says, and any error in my declaration, declarations, any lacuna, which is a a gap. Right, a missing 
Isn't that isn't that what a lacuna is? Mm-hmm. It's like a yeah. A miss. Bring it up here. Uh, a missing section of text. <laughs> um, or but he says a lacuna of my mind, isn't it? <laughs> or in my story mm-hmm. of my observ in the sequence of my observations, right? That that I don't think that there's anything you could complain about the story and say, oh, this is a bit too long, this is a bit too short, this, you know, there's no, there's nothing where you look at this and say, it's it's got something wrong with it we could fix. If right. I was an editor, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, you know, you know, make the character more interesting or, or you know, uh, give him a girlfriend or something. You know, I wouldn't do anything <laughs> like that. It's perfect. And, and I know sometimes, um, you know, the reason I maybe I didn't think this story was the first choice is because I didn't understand, I didn't understand it completely, but I didn't think there's something wrong with it in that, you know, it, I think he, he put those things in there for good reason. And it all gives us this sort of the, it's the feeling I try and explain to students about uh, what an oxymoron is, you know, in poetry, mm-hmm. you've got that, uh, the rude, uh, rude gentleness or something like that. Mm-hmm. It gives you this sort of, well, I don't know what that means, right? I don't know how to feel about that. Well, that's exactly what an oxymoron is, right? It's, it's, it's putting you in an unbalanced situation where you could tip in any direction um, and and have that not be, uh, it could have that not be um, justified by, it, it, it actually is trying to make you feel a certain way. Right. And this does that, right? It does it in the way that a perfect short story does, I think. The the insane sanity of the character. Yes. Or the sane insanity of the character. Yes. Hmm. Okay, so what about the widow Boudouin? Boudouin? Right. Why is she in there? If this is a perfect story. <laughs> <laughs> I have an idea. Um, Boudouin is the French for Baldwin. And uh, Baldwin is a bold, bold, uh, bold man or something like that, but also bald, B-A-L-D. Mm-hmm. Um, she is the neighbor, the female neighbor. Here's the quote. He ordinarily passes his evenings. This is talking about the, the bald man with no name who has the catacomb like uh, furniture store. Right. He ordinarily passes his evenings at the house of his female neighbor, who is also a furniture broker, a queer sort of sorceress, the widow Bidouin. And it's French for Baldwin, um, also reference, uh, and Baldwin is a reference to the bald man. Is, uh, is she married to the neighbor, who's also a furniture broker? And then if she's a widow, is that why the guy's missing? Hmm. Hmm. Makes me, uh, but if she's a sorceress, and obviously this other guy, you know, if if we're taking it a fact that the guy's not crazy, our main unnamed narrator, unnamed character, right, mm-hmm. is not crazy, then how did the furniture get there? She's a sorceress. She commanded it to, you know, get up and walk out, like in that Disney movie or something, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> the candlesticks and and Dell went to Rouen. <laughs> And that's how they make their living? It's like, what? What's going on there? Yeah. Why is she in the story if it is a perfect short story? <laughs> maybe you've just proven that it isn't a perfect short story. Maybe. maybe. 
There's not that many named characters. There's the servant. That's true. Yeah. And it's her. I think that's it. And the servant, I don't think his name was particularly... Uh, it, it, he did have a first name and a last name, but I don't think they were... Um, uh, yeah, I don't think, it's uh, Philippe Rodin. Right. Is that is that a literary reference that we should... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. I didn't. I didn't find any evidence that it was, but it's very hard to do these sort of etymological searches in a foreign language. Yeah. Um. What What did, do you guys remember his feelings while he was touring Africa? Um. Just that he, when he was well, just touring all around, he got calm. Yeah. Um, um, but especially in Africa, but when he before he came back to um, to uh, France, right? Um, he had uh, something strange to say, and this is the beginning of part two or chapter two, I guess it would right. be. Um, he says, "Then I traveled over Sicily, a country celebrated for its scenery and its monuments, relics left by the Greeks and the Normans." And of course, he's a Norman, or at mm-hmm. least he's he visits Nor- Normandy. Uh, uh, Rouen later. Right. Um, passing over into Africa, I traversed at my ease the immense desert, yellow and tranquil, in which camels, gazelles, and Arab vagabonds roam, where in the rare and transparent atmosphere there hover no vague hauntings, where there is never any la- night, but always day. That's mm. weird. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because that's where you see the vague hauntings. It's in the desert. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and also there, there's very much a night in the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, beautiful clear night is yeah. true. Unless uh, he's gone, you know, to the Arctic tundra, uh, where yeah. there won't be night for a while. <laughs> it's a different sort of desert. Yeah, he. You know, it, it's interesting that you you bring up that point because I think it starts to tie into. Um, Another another one of the themes sort of that, that comes into this story, well, a lot of the stories, and that's the theme of fear. And and I know, Jesse, we talked a little bit about the story of fear. And I read that story, and, yeah. and it does have this desert sort of haunting, right? Well, what's interesting is that he talks about a desert, and he uses the same um, a term that appears in Who Knows. He mentions that at one point in the story, he mentions a presentiment. And here's a passage from from fear, where he says, I had a presentiment in Africa, although presentiment is a daughter of the north. The sun mm-hmm. dissipates it like a fog. Notice that well, gentlemen, among the Orientals, life counts for nothing. They are always resigned to meet death. Nights are clear and free from the disquieting shadows which haunt the brains of the people of cold countries. So, I mean, he does associate this is kind that- of what he considers true fear which he distinguishes in the story fear from panic. Panic is what you feel when you're faced with a thief, a marauder, what have you, mm-hmm. with the sort of spiritual gnawing that haunts you in the deeps of the night. And he associates that with northern cultures, basically. Um, yeah. And the same thing happens here. He goes to Africa, and all those vague hauntings of the night disappear. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. In in another story around uh, maybe the same year, uh, The Inn, Mm -hmm. um, the way we looked at that 
um, I came away with the feeling that it was kind of what H.P. Lovecraft does. Um, it's it's sort of a God is dead, but he never really was alive. The universe is real, but we're alone in it. Mm-hmm. And and looking up at the starry night, um, we are uh, pointless, um, alone, um, with nothingness uh, behind us and nothing nothingness ahead of us and it's horrible and that's what the inn is all about right it's about a guy becoming alone um and he goes crazy because he's alone it's sort of the opposite of this one right where he 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 wants to be alone that guy he desperately didn't want to be alone Mm -hmm. um there's this like in the tumult of the crowd right in the city you can kind of forget and especially with the light pollution of a city you can kind of forget that there is a universe that doesn't care about you that's outside and you know so in a city we're all in this together and yeah people die there's a shot for that down the street right Mm. whereas in the countryside when you look up at the the night sky um if you if you can see the sky, if there isn't light pollution from a nearby city, all you, if you understand what that is, it's not just all for us, it's not just a show for us, then you start to feel very, very, very small and very unimportant. And any choices you make are kind of um, pointless, but also it, 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 it's like a monster. Lovecraft made it a monster, right? It's the Elder Gods. Right. Right. It's a sort of symbolic. Here, there's there's no um, Lovecraftian monster. There is just a the feeling that causes that monster, right? right. And in him, it's it's a sort of internal break. Somehow, I don't know. There's something in this in this story, even I think that has that. Oh, I agree. It, just with those the one line there about the desert and the night, and right. The, I, I, uh, another professor friend of uh, mine, he he talks about light being, you know, the symbol for, and this is not unique to him, right? Light is the symbol for knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in the darkness, we're afraid because, and ghost stories happen at night because um, the knowledge is not there. We're afraid of the things we don't know, can't understand, and and and. It's like if you look at those surgery shows where they, you know, they do surgery. At first, it's horrible and disgusting, but the more you can label all the things they're they're looking at, you know, inside somebody's chest cavity, you say, "Oh, that's the liver. That's the, you know, it, it, it's not a scary. It becomes more interesting." Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I I agree too because you also see this. This is another one of those things that you see in other stories that Maupassant writes. And it's almost like when he writes each of these stories, he takes, you know, there'll be some story where, where that sort of um, solitude in the midst of a sort of a cosmic vastness and emptiness in which we're lost. He'll write a story like solitude, which focuses on that. But then there's always an element. There's some little crumb of that, that he sort of drops into other stories as well. And I think you get it. Like you say, in this story here. Mm hmm. Um, Rouen, 
this is the only other note I have. I think I've, I've exhausted all my notes pretty much. Rouen is uh, based, it's got its name from the Roman name for the town, which is uh, Rotomegas, which is apparently round uh, market or round plane. Um, but it also has the word magus in it, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, yeah, it's a wizard, right? Um, he could have said it in any town. I don't know. I mean, he's obviously familiar with with uh, Rouen, so. Um, but I just thought <laughs> that's one of the. You know, I'm always I always look. At, it's like a. Uh, I look for fingerprints. You know, if I'm a detective, mm-hmm. I look for names and uh, the etymology of the names, and that was one that came up. I don't know. Uh, I still don't understand the the little man with the yellow beard, straggly yellow beard, and a bald head like a moon, perfectly. But it, it, I've never seen um, I've never seen the ring cycle, so I don't know if the dwarves actually look like that. But it sounds kind of like what Tolkien's dwarves look like, right? Yeah. Sure. I, I, I like they're, they're, on that. Yeah, they're also uh, they're great craftsmen, and here he is among all this beautiful furniture. Mm. Uh, yeah. Oh, so that's God? <laughs> is that is that he has a grudge against God now? I don't know. So in the in the three chapters, right? He's writing at the beginning, and then obviously he's written all the way through. But at the end, he's writing again, and we get the sense: was there any break in this writing? Is this all done at once sitting, or has he been checked in? And then he, you know, because there's a couple of page breaks that right. possibly. These are like diary entries. Who knows? But <laughs> <laughs> I guess we just answered it. Right? <laughs> well, it's it's interesting too. I mean that that, that is an interesting point. Um, that he says at the end he's been alone for three months, but right. doesn't at the beginning of the story doesn't he say? Maybe I'm maybe I'm mixing things up. Um, uh, yesterday, says, yesterday I, was in, I was in a private asylum, right? Uh-huh. So there seems to be some time gap there. Right. I don't think it took him three months to write continuously 11 pages. Yes, but yesterday he was in a private asylum, and today he's in a prison. And they're the same place, right? He, he was in there voluntarily before, and now he's committed, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one possible explanation. Um, it's also interesting that a lot of the stories where you are getting someone narrating his own descent into madness, the journal is presented as a journal. So there's a day by day. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you don't have that here. There's just there's the reference to yesterday, and then there's the reference at the end of three months. Um, so you wonder. There's no. Is there no lacuna in the inflexible sequence of his observations? Mm. It seems that there would have to be. Wow, yeah. That's the end. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that was the lacuna in which the end took place. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.